0: we'll explore the characteristics of creepiness. Also, being busy. Everyone is so busy. How many times have you heard, oh, she's a very busy person?
1: In a way, that's code for she's important. That's impressive, right? It seems like all the most impressive people in our world are busy, 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 but that is a big cultural lie.
0: Plus, most cooks today know that if you cook with wine or alcohol, the alcohol burns off. Except it doesn't, and it's important to understand why. And wouldn't you love to find the fountain of youth? Well, one well-respected doctor has in fact discovered it.
2: The fountain of youth is something I've I've discovered the last uh, 15 years I've been in practice. It turns out no one wants the fountain of youth.
0: Find out why today on Something You Should Know. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone, and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly, because the right people can make all the difference to your business. No, you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. You just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed
2: something you should know fascinating intel the world's top experts and practical advice you can use in your life today something you should know with mike carruthers hello
0: and welcome to our weekend episode this week of something you should know and i want to start with something i think is really interesting and very appropriate as we head into the holiday season Because it is this time of year when people start to do a lot of cooking, and oftentimes holiday cooking involves alcohol. And I've always heard, and I imagine you've heard this too, that when you cook with alcohol, it burns off. I would guess that 9 out of 10 cooks, if you ask them, would say they believe that. And yet, it turns out to be false. In general, you would have to cook something for three hours to get rid of all the alcohol. Of course, it depends on the food and the cooking method and the pan, and there are other factors, but generally speaking, alcohol does not disappear quickly in the cooking process. Many cookbooks say that when cooking a sauce, for example, you simmer it for 20 to 30 seconds to remove the alcohol, but experiments show that it's just impossible, couldn't possibly happen. So when cooking for others, remember the fact that some of the alcohol does remain could be a significant concern to recovering alcoholics, parents of children, and others who might have some ethical or religious reason to avoid alcohol. And that is something you should know. So let's talk about the problem of getting things done and multitasking and being busy And I'm sure you can relate to it on some level, which is why I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening to my first guest today, Christine Carter. Christine is a happiness expert at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. She's a speaker and a writer and a mother, and like you, she's very, very busy. Christine has a book out called The Sweet Spot, How to Find Your Groove at Home and at Work. And she believes this preoccupation we have with Always being busy, trying to multitask all the time. It's taking a toll on all of us. So Christine, what's what's the problem here as you see it? I mean, what's what's so bad about being busy?
1: The problem is that we are so busy, busy, busy all the time, and that we see that busyness and overwhelm as a sign that we are on our on the road to success. We see busyness as a marker of significance.
0: And it's not?
1: It's not it's actually a sign that we are not fulfilling our potential. Busyness closely resembles what researchers call cognitive overload in our brain. That cognitive overload makes us less decisive, it hinders our ability to think clearly, to plan, to organize ourselves, to resist temptation, to remember social information like our the name of our boss's daughter or our daughter's boss. It it hinders our ability to control our emotions, really, and makes it harder to do all the things that we want to do well.
0: Who knew that? I thought being busy just meant you were busy, and that maybe you didn't have time for things, but who knew it had all these other side effects?
1: Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And, you know, when we say, oh, you know, she's just really busy, it, in a way that's code for she's important. That's impressive, right? It seems like all the most impressive people in our world are busy, busy, busy and pressed for time. But that is a is a big cultural lie and that when we dial back those feelings of overwhelm and busyness using sort of really strategic tactics we can do this we actually can accomplish more
0: so how did i get so busy being busy
1: well, you live in this culture which values and prizes busyness and is, is throwing data at you all the time. You have you have unlimited opportunities to be busy all the time because even if you're just standing in a line, you can be busy checking your email or checking your social media feeds or reading it, an interesting article. Um, so, you know... A, there, we live in a culture that says more is better, especially more information, more stuff, more things to do, and, uh, and so we, we all end up here at one time or another. The trick is understanding that this is causing us to enjoy our lives less, and also from accomplishing as much as we can when we are operating in our sweet spot.
0: So what does operating in the sweet spot look like? If I'm not super busy, I think people have the tendency to think, well, if you're not busy, you're bored.
1: Yeah, or you're lazy, or you must not be very important. So operating in our sweet spot is that place of maximum impact, where we have our greatest powers, where we're living our greatest strengths, but also... It's the least resistance, right? The sweet spot in sports is that that place where the bat doesn't break, right, or it doesn't move. There's no impact um, on the athlete's shoulder, for example. So knowing that it's your greatest power, but also the least tension, the least stress, because that tension and stress Hinders our performance, hinders our power. so the great news is is that we can grow our sweet spots. We can live our lives from our sweet spots both at home and at work. We just need to dial up the the ease element of things and um, also increase our power.
0: Oh, I love that. I want to dial up the ease element and um, so but where do you even begin if you 're one of those people who's so super busy you don 't even have time to you barely have time to listen to this interview. Um, I mean, where? how do you even start to get off that, that merry-go-round?
1: The busyness treadmill, getting out of the rat race. Okay, the first place to step is to start single-tasking. So uh, when we get really busy, a lot of times we feel compelled to multitask, and, and a lot of times we actually really pride ourselves on our multitasking ability. So the first step is to realize that when you're multitasking, you're much less efficient than if you were single tasking and you're increasing the strain and the stress on your brain and sometimes even your body. So doing allowing yourself to focus singularly on one thing at a time without having your phone on, without getting you know message alerts, without checking your email at the same time. Let yourself do its most powerful work by focusing on one thing at a time. You're going to complete each of those tasks much faster. So actually be at work for less time at, while still checking all the same things off your list. But you're also going to do those tasks better. They're, you're going to be less error prone in, um, in your work.
0: But if I am to do everything one at a time, what if I, uh, I find that then I don't have time for everything?
1: But it, you won't, though. This is, this is part of that myth. So, yes, the first time you do this, it's going to be a leap of faith because we've all been taught that multitasking is the only way to get things done because it's more efficient. But what research shows is that it's actually considerably less efficient. We're not actually doing two things or three things at once. Our brain is, is switching back and forth really rapidly between those Different tasks and we lose time in that switching back and forth and become more error prone. So not only does it take a lot more time to correct mistakes we might make while uh, multitasking, it takes more time in general, so you just have to try it out one thing at a time. Move from one task, start all the way to finish, then go to the next thing, start all the way to finish, and don't interrupt yourself during that with by just taking a quick little glance at your email or you know actually turn your phone off so that you can so that you truly can focus.
0: Well, and and it seems like from what you're saying is that that. Th- if you do that and you do the things well that you do that you decide to do that that the superfluous will kind of fall away on its own
1: that what falls away is the, is the tension that comes and the irritability that comes from trying to do to operate in a way that your brain just really wasn 't designed to operate. We were not designed to multitask. Our brain was designed to be most powerful when we're doing one thing at a time. So it's like switching from a tractor engine to a Ferrari engine. It's, it's unbelievably rewarding to work this way.
0: And you say that that I'll get more done.
1: I promise you, you will actually be able to get more done. It's not about become doing less. I'll tell you, you know, I was in a position in my life where I'm kind of a a recovering perfectionist and overachiever. And I was, you know, I had this great career that I was very successful. I loved it. I did not want to give any part of it up. I had, you know, children, and I love my family. I've written this parenting book and um, didn't want to be less of a parent, right? Everything in my life was really hard won. I did not want to give anything up. But I was exhausted, I was busy, I was overwhelmed, I was multitasking all the time, and I, it really took a toll on my health. I was so exhausted all the time that I had chronic strep infections. I landed one day in the uh, hospital with a kidney infection of all things, and I realized that if I didn't want to give anything up, I needed to learn to do things differently. And so this is why I wrote this book, this is the sort of my recipe book for living within your sweet spot, so that you... You can have it all so that you don't have to give up the things that you love. It's about learning to ha- be more powerful and more efficient in the things that you do do.
0: Well, since you brought up parenting, I think that's a really good example of if you've got three kids and they're, they all want you now, how do you do that mm-hmm. one at a time?
1: Well, it, you, you know, you've just you've just said it. So when you can group an activity into, you know, into one, one actual activity from your brain's point of view, that will work, right? So I have four kids. We eat dinner all together, for example, right? So that's one activity I'm doing with them all. It is also really important for me to remember that if I'm helping one kid with their homework, that it's very hard for me to do another cognitive task. I can't really be helping two kids with their homework at the same time or reading a recipe for what I need to cook for dinner at the same time I'm helping somebody with homework. I can do, however, here's the great caveat, I can, do, um, I can multitask if they're not two intellectual tasks at the same time so I just don't want my brain to be switching back and forth between two cognitive tasks so I have found I'm I can fold laundry for example at the same time I'm helping one kid uh, with their homework because I don't have to pay attention really when I'm folding laundry I'm not very good at folding laundry but I don't really care about it either right so errors don't it doesn't really matter I can focus all of my attention on that one child
0: you know, a, a lot of times people, when they're really, really busy, they get less done because they, they they spend a lot of time worrying about all the things they have to do, as opposed to doing it. They're stressed out rather than productive. How do you how do you switch from one to the other?
1: You know, it's. That's super common, and, it, and it's just this horrible snowball effect, right? You're, you have so much to do that you feel stressed, and the more stressed you are, the less productive and efficient and effective that you are at that. So it's stopping that snowball from rolling down the hill. One quick tip for how to do this is when you make your task list, you're likely to feel really overwhelmed by it if you don't tell your unconscious brain when you are going to do things. So if you make a big long list of things that you have to do, but your brain does not know when you're, you're planning on doing those things, it will keep reminding you. It will wake you up in the middle of the night and tell you what it is you need to do. And it's not actually trying to te- remind you to do it or to help you complete it. None of those intrusive thoughts are helpful at all, especially if you've got it written down on a list. It's just basically asking you, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? And as soon as you say, I'm going to do that Thursday at lunchtime, your brain will quiet and those feelings of overwhelm will start to die down. So if you're feeling stressed out, make a list and then tell your brain when you will do it. Actually plot it out on your calendar.
0: I love that. That's a great idea. Last, uh, last question and, and just any other like really clever tips like that that, that kind of wet people's appetite and kickstart this process that, that could get them going.
1: Yes, you know, the book is loaded with really quick and easy things that you can do that will dial back overwhelm. One of my favorite things to do is to think about uh, social connections. Any sort of social connection is going to be a real force for power and also create ease in our nervous system. It's just how we're built. So smile at the barista the next time that you're rushing in to get yourself a cup of coffee to keep yourself going in the afternoon, slow down enough to make eye contact, ask the barista how they're doing, chit-chat with somebody in line, any sort of social connection like that where you're smiling is basically helping your body reset itself from stress. Those social connections have tremendous power. It's magic to our nervous system.
0: Well, great. I always enjoy talking to you, Christine. You always you always kind of put a fresh light on everything, so I appreciate your time. Christine Carter is author of the book, The Sweet Spot, How to Find Your Groove at Home and at Work. There's a link to her book on Amazon.com. You can find the link on the show notes page for this episode of the podcast. Thanks, Christine.
1: Oh, sure. Thank you. It was lots of fun.
0: And good luck with the book. Thanks, Christine. You're
1: a great Christine. interviewer. Thank you.
0: Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit totalwine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink
3: responsibly. B21. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal.
0: Staying healthy, it involves a lot of things, and you're about to find out some of the most important things for living a long and healthy and active life. Things both to do and some things not to do. From Dr. Davis Liu, who is a board-certified family physician and author of the book, The Thrifty Patient. So, doctor, let's begin with what I think is one of the cornerstones for many people when it comes to their health care, and that is the annual physical exam, which you believe is not necessary, but the recommendation for a yearly physical goes back, way back. I mean...
2: Decades. It's kind of like seeing your dentist every six months, and I asked them, I think that's been hundreds of years, at least, or a hundred years, at least, for dentists. And they just said, well, it's because it seems like a reasonable thing.
0: Who would question that, and yet you say that that perhaps that's not necessary?
2: Yes, at least for the last few decades. um, Recent article... As recent as 2007 said this, 2002 said this. There's no medical evidence that saves lives, and it makes sense. Um, We don't bring our car in just because we want to bring it in to get a checkup, so why would a checkup just out of the blue make any sense either?
0: And yet insurance companies still will pay for your your one free annual physical.
2: I think it's a benefit, um, and if you can use it, you should certainly use it. Um, however, a lot of evidence of one in twelve visits uh, turns out are for physicals and frankly uh, there's no proof it saves lives and worth it's worth your time or money.
0: I guess it's just people think well, if there's something early, you'll catch it. You'll find it early on in a physical that if we wait till symptoms show up that then it might be too late.
2: Yes, and so I think the difference is what times might you seek to get a physical and so Certainly places like Ontario, Canada, they've actually gotten rid of the physical, but for people between 18 and 64, what they offer is called a uh, uh, personalized interview. And they see what risk factors you're at, uh, what things you're at risk for, and should bring you in for a physical. So absolutely true. Maybe not getting annual physical, but being mindful of certain milestones in your life might be important to see a doctor.
0: Things like what?
2: Uh, your age. I think certainly at age uh, 21, uh, 40, 50, and 65, important screening tests come due at that point. If you have no family history of any illnesses, then you don't need to see anyone sooner. But if you, if you have uh, those age points, you should be able to see a doctor then.
0: But otherwise, if you feel okay, you should just leave it alone and just not worry about it?
2: In general, if you have no family history of diabetes, heart disease, you don't take cholesterol medicines for anything, Uh, The keys are, number one, on your birthday, check your blood pressure and your body mass index. Make sure those numbers are normal. Check a website called healthfinder.gov and see what you're due for. But in general, eating healthy, maintaining a healthy uh, weight and exercise are really critical to staying healthy. So, yes, if you're otherwise healthy and well, you may not need an annual physical.
0: Do you find, though, as a practicing physician, that people uh, may not be leading such a healthy life and they come to you to maybe fix that with a pill?
2: Absolutely true. Uh, Unfortunately, if they come to my practice, they'll be disappointed because they'll talk about the unsexy things of moving 10,000 steps per day Um, eliminating a soda a day um, because there are no quick fixes despite all the hype. It really is as boring as eating less and moving more. And that's been shown to actually increase lifespan by quite a few years.
0: Just those simple things?
2: Simple things like five servings of fruits and vegetables, don't smoke, If you drink, do it in moderation, and exercise at least 30 minutes a day. Sounds sounds not to be very earth-shattering, but turns out they've done some research and people extend their lives by a few years.
0: It is discouraging, though, when you hear about people or you know people who seem to be leading a fairly healthy lifestyle, and yet at an early age, they get cancer, something happens, and they die at a fairly young age.
2: Yes, that's true. So, we as doctors have things we can do, hence the importance of certain ages you should see a doctor, age 21 to screen for uh, cervical cancer for women, age 40 for cholesterol and blood sugar screening for both men and women, age 50 for both men and women for colon cancer screening, and then age 65 for osteoporosis for women. And, and those, age, uh, those ages, you probably should see a doctor for a physical, and to see what things you need to be screened at. at based on your risk factors at that point, your doctor may want to see every year at that point. But prior to those uh, ages, particularly under age 40, most of us don't need physicals. But certainly at ages 40, 50, and 65, we must check in with the doctor.
0: When I go to the doctor for a physical, it doesn't seem to be as, I don't know, as thorough or intense as I remember physicals when I was a kid.
2: You know, it turns out a lot of physicals back when I was growing up too, we did a lot of tests. We did chest x-rays for smokers. We did urine tests. And it pans out the last probably 20 years or so. a lot of these tests we did thinking we were doing something actually had no value scientifically. So a lot of those things aren't necessary anymore. So a lot of it is asking patients during a physical what your risk factors for certain illnesses and cancers might be, taking a look at your blood pressure, a number one cause of uh, death is heart disease, and that's a silent killer, and checking your body mass index. So most of my times, if patients see me for a physical, it's to remind them to get the important screening test done for cancer, get some blood work if they need it, and more importantly, a big discussion about lifestyle changes, maintaining a healthy weight, and eating healthy.
0: Isn't, though, a, a lot of the reason that people go to the doctor when they're not sick is to be reassured that they're not sick?
2: Absolutely, and I think for those patients who absolutely feel that a annual physical helps them stay motivated, helps them stay focused on what they need to do to, to stay healthy and well for another year, I think that's an absolutely great thing to do, and, and certainly I welcome it. However, for those of us who think there's medical evidence that it saves lives, their answer is no. That caveat is, what I tell all my patients is, on your birthday, check to see if you're that year they need to see a doctor at 21, 40, 50, or 65. And those who um, have a family history of diseases they're not sure about, definitely talk to your doctor and see, A, do you need to be tested, and B, how often would your doctor like to check on you?
0: It seems like, I guess, people think that if, they, if they're doing something, then they're actually doing something.
2: Yes. I think the key about annual physicals is if you feel like you're actively doing something, to see a doctor, make sure you get an evaluation, kind of your overall health status. I think it's a wonderful thing and from patients who actually find that helps them stay motivated for the following year. Please continue. For those who just wonder, the minimum, I'd say, is on your birthdays, check your blood pressure, check your body mass index. Ask yourself if you're eating enough fruits and veggies, you know, five servings a day typically, and moderate exercise, 30 minutes a day, can be broken up throughout the day. And if you maintain a body mass index under 30, which is uh, under obesity, I think that's a great start.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Davis Liu. He is a family physician and author of the book, The Thrifty Patient. So, Dr. Liu, when people get sick as they age, when they get diagnosed with something terrible, like cancer or serious heart disease or or diabetes, something, would a trip to the doctor earlier maybe have caught it sooner, or if there are no symptoms, you're unlikely to catch it either?
2: Great question. So for illnesses like diabetes, which are becoming more common as we get older, it affects one in four adults over age 65, it turns out having been overweight or obese, body mass index over 30. That can get caught sooner, so there's some things you can be done sooner. For certain cancers like colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, there are tests we can do, so I encourage patients to be screened at age uh, 40 uh, and 50 uh, for those. Um, But unfortunately, it turns out some cancers there is no test for, and there's no way a doctor would have picked it up. That being said, if you ever have symptoms of anything, um, don't, don't let it wait too long. Usually if most things improve within two to three weeks. If things don't seem to be improving, just check a doctor and see uh, what things they might have to come up with.
0: So what, what's the difference between the normal aches and pains of life and maybe getting older versus something that's really worth going to see the doctor for?
2: Great question. So symptoms that don't make sense. One of the biggest worries I have when I talk to patients is when I say, how have you been? They say, great. And I've asked them, have you lost weight? They go, yes, I have. I say, how'd you do that? They go, I don't know. So any unexplained symptoms that don't make sense, like weight loss, unexplained would be one thing. In terms of joint pains and arthritis pains, things like that, in general, typical aches and pains we get as we get older generally get better in the morning when we get up, maybe a little stiffness for the first hour as we warm up. But by the end of the day, they tend to get getting better. And by nighttime, they kind of can get worse. But then when you go to bed and get up the next morning, it gets better. So joint pains that tend to get worse as the day goes on, but then better with rest, generally are more aches and pains we get as we get older. Things that might be more worrisome are joint pains that you have with fever or weight loss or swelling that seems continuous and not improving on its own.
0: When you talk uh, to patients about leading a healthy life and all, uh, how how big a factor, because we hear it's a big factor, how big a factor do you see stress as being?
2: I think stress can be healthy when it's perceived the correct way. Um, Stress, we all need a little bit of stress in our lives. It just becomes when it's not in balance with the rest of our lives. And when we find imbalance with stress, it turns out we have different habits. Most of us respond in three different ways with stress. We have emotional changes behavioral changes, or uh, physical changes. i uh, give you an example. One of the things that stress can do, actually, is for behavior changes when people drink more or they smoke more or they avoid exercise because they don't have time. So that's one example of how stress can impact our lives because it changes the behavior. So stress can play a role, but I've seen plenty of people also cope with stress and make them be better. The question is how do we balance stress of lives and, and, and do that in a healthy way?
0: What are the things that if, if you could scream them from the mountaintop that, that you wish people would do? Oh, you, Well, you and I were talking the other day about how, you know, the, the fountain of youth, and, and you said, well, I'll let, I'll let you repeat what you said.
2: Well, the fountain of youth is something I've, I've discovered the last, uh, you know, 15 years I've been in practice. It turns out no one wants the fountain of youth because it's incredibly hard. It is a magic pill everyone asks me for. It's, it's exercise, and it turns out I've got patients in their 80s who do fabulous. In fact, they're, they're playing golf people in their 60s because no one else can keep up with them and beating them. Um, so they're a real inspiration to me. I've got a paratrooper from World War II. He's in his 90s now. He walks six miles a day and does easily 100 push-ups a day. Easily beats his doctor on, 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 a, on a, a push-up. So these are my inspiration. And, and it turns out that is the only thing that keeps people healthy and well and, and very vibrant. So... That's the fountain of youth. Hard to do, but also the good news, easy to do.
0: You know, I, I remember uh, talking to someone, and it's always stuck with me. It was a, a doctor or s- somebody that uh, I'd interviewed that said that a the, the huge percentage of people who are in nursing homes, rest homes, aren't there because they're really sick so much as that they just can't function. They can't, you know, get the peanut butter jar lid off, or they can't, you know, get in and out of a, a chair. I mean, it's it's just that they've atrophied into, into an old person because they didn't stay active.
2: So another really great story of mine is, is debilitation is what you're referring to and just getting the basic stuff of work and life done. And one of my patients I remember many years ago, still in my practice, he, uh, he came with a walker uh, one day and, and really looked his age and asked me what I could do, and I could only offer some prescription medications for joint pains. So he thought about it, went home, and then came back six months later without a walker, Without a cane, looked fantastic. And I said, well, what did you do? Because clearly I didn't do anything. He goes, you know what, I heard what you said. I started exercising, and he loves to trim bonsai trees. And so he did that, and he said, you know what, Dr. Lou? that almost killed me. I tried that for two hours, and that almost killed me, but I stuck with it, rain or shine. And he started adding more time in gardening, and now he's doing great, and he looks fantastic. But when, he asks, when people ask him what he did, he goes, well, I work in the garden four hours a day. And people say, well, I don't want to do that. What else can you got? He goes, that's the only thing I got. And so, again, a lot of patients inspire me. It is A lot of times it is we lose function and and our ability to move and do things as we get older. So to fight back uh, father time, exercise really pushes that back quite a bit.
0: And yet it is amazing how people who, when they say, you know, they hate to exercise and they hate to work out or they hate to do whatever it is they're going to do, I've never heard anybody do it go to the gym or go on a walk and come back and say, God, that was horrible. I, you know, I wish I hadn't done it. It's, everybody always is thankful that they did it, but they hate doing it.
2: Yeah, that's really what makes us so human, isn't it? It's that we have an emotional part of our brain and an irrational part. And the rational part knows we need to go out and move around. Uh, but the emotional part says, well, maybe not today. Today's kind of rainy. Maybe tomorrow. Or maybe not today, because after all, I'm really tired. I deserve a break. And so how do we manage uh, both sides of the brain? Having a partner exercise with you really helps. Um, having little tricks like saying, you know what, I'm just going for a five-minute walk. And afterwards, if I don't like that five-minute walk, I'll go home because I'm, I'm done. Uh, but it turns out, to your point, after we get these things done, we get the motivation. Then the emotional part kind of kicks in and goes, you know what, that five minutes felt pretty good. I wonder how I might continue to do that. One other trick I learned is maybe to record yourself after a great walk that day and say, hey, Davis Lou." I just finished a 30-minute walk today. It was a great day. It was sunny, a lot of fresh air. could see the trees and the squirrels running around. And record that on your phone. So one day when you need to exercise, go, I don't want to, play back that voice and hear about how emotionally excited you were about that particular exercise and see if you can do that.
0: Well, great. And those are some really practical tips on what to do to stay healthy, Uh, not only things you can do, but maybe some things you don't have to do, like the annual physical that could save you some time and money as well. Dr. Davis Liu is a board-certified family physician, and he is author of the book, The Thrifty Patient. There's a link to his book on Amazon. You can find it on the show notes page for uh, this episode of the podcast, which you can check out on our website, which I would love to have you check out if you haven't already. And the website is (music) somethingyoushouldknow.net. And finally today on the podcast, what makes a person creepy? It's a question you kind of intuitively know the answer to, but probably not one you think about very often. But there's actually some research that looked into what makes someone a creep. Over 1,300 people were surveyed, and it's widely believed that if you're a clown, a taxidermist, a a sex shop owner, or a funeral director, pretty much people are going to think you're a creep, uh, I guess, until you prove otherwise. There are also some behaviors and nonverbal cues that make someone come across as creepier. Being extremely thin sends that signal. Not looking you in the eye does as well. When people ask to take a picture of you and you don't know them, uh, yeah, you're going to think they're a creep. Watching people before interacting with them tends to make people creepy. When someone asks details about your personal life when you don't know them, that's a pretty clear signal. <laughs> that's just really creepy. Displaying too much or too little emotion makes someone creepy. Being older makes a person creepier, and well, that's, that's kind of age discrimination, but I guess when you're young, people who are, who are very old and look very old can sometimes kind of freak people out or creep people out. And steering the conversation towards sex will pretty much give you the brand of being a creep. And the last question that people in the survey had to answer, and remember this was 1,300 people who were surveyed, do most creepy people know that they're creepy? And 60% said no, which means (laughs) there's an awful lot of creepy people walking around who have no idea how creepy they are. And that is something you should know. In this increasingly competitive world of podcasting, it really helps when you share this podcast with someone you know, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts. All those things help this podcast and show your support. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That too is a move, a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023.